continue over in John chapter 18. I'd like to read verses 15 through 18, and then we'll read verses 25 through 27. And uh, this is found in the other three Gospels as well, but we'll just read Luke 22 after this. We'll read these two as for Gospel Harmony. John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Gone into verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Luke chapter 22. We'll start in verse 54. Luke 22, verses 54 through 62. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, was looking intently at him and said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask Your ongoing help as we study Your Word together. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would convict us of truth and righteousness. You might also lead us to see the glories of Jesus. For those of us who already know Christ, that we would just glory in Him all the more. And for those of us who have continued to live our life in rebellion against You, I pray that You would break that rebellion and that stubbornness they would soften hard hearts today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, of all the disciples, Peter is certainly one of the leaders, which makes this threefold denial, which we find in all four Gospels, a mark of the Gospels' authenticity. If there might have been something which the early church would like to overlook, it would be this tremendous failure. 
But here again, we're confronted with what the truth of the Gospel is all about. What's at truly the heart of the Gospel? Salvation is not found in a man's futile efforts to do what is right and to live a sinless life, but rather, a man's salvation is found in his trust in a Savior who forgives and redeems and restores. So while the story of Peter is tremendously sad, it's also filled with hope. We discover what results by looking at Peter's, uh, the events of this day in Peter's life. We discover what results from foolishly trusting in our own power and making presumptuous boasts. We learn what happens when we fail to watch and pray. We find quickly that our bravado can be shown to be empty boasting. We can see just how easily we can buckle under the pressures of a moment. Because none of us are exempt from, the, from uh, doing similarly to what Peter did here and succumbing to temptations that are around us. Yet in this story and in the events to come, we also learn of the power of the loving Savior, Jesus Christ. How one look from Him can change everything. You see, there's hope for fools. There's hope for cowards. There's hope for liars. And that hope is Jesus. In a sermon entitled, Hope for Fools, Cowards, and Liars, I want to see just two things, two quick, easy points to remember. The first is the sinner's sin, and the second is the sinner's Savior. First, the sinner's sin. Second, the sinner's Savior. You see, even Peter, one of the most prominent early church leaders, was not exempt from the need for forgiveness. For while there is much to be commended in Peter, Peter was nonetheless a sinner. And his sinfulness is perhaps nowhere more prominent than in this passage that we're looking at here this morning. But Peter's life would be an example to others of how Jesus works with broken vessels to bring about His glorious purposes. So let's first of all consider the sinner's sin. Let's begin by considering a foolish boast. A foolish boast. Now Jesus had told His disciples that they would soon be scattered and leave Him to face this upcoming set of circumstances alone. That very night... He tells Peter that you will deny me three times. Peter can't believe those words. Peter said that even if everyone else deserts you, Lord, I will not. He goes on to say, I'm ready to go to prison or even death for you, Jesus. Now, we're told a little after that that the other disciples were saying the same. Okay? Let's, let's not lose track of that. As we talk about Peter, where were the other disciples? <laughs> Nowhere to be found at all, right? Well, except one other one. But So we have at least two following Jesus, and the rest are just gone somewhere else. But we see this bold statement from Peter. Even if everyone else deserts you, Lord, I won't. I'll be there with you. I'll even go to prison or death for you. So there's some initial fleeing when Jesus is arrested. But then Peter and another unnamed disciple do follow Jesus, though at a distance. Now, only John's Gospel talks about this other disciple. But he becomes particularly important because he serves as Peter's uh, access pass into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter can't get in on his own credentials. But this other disciple has credentials such that not only could he get into the courtyard, but he's able to go back when he sees that Peter's still on the outside and get him entrance in. 
the traditional view is that this other disciple was John. Other suggestions have been made like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, we see um, coming up into the story here after Jesus' death, attending to his burial. But we can't be certain. The text doesn't say specifically. But elsewhere, John seems to have no trouble naming those guys. So again, if he's named Joseph and Nicodemus in other passages, why wouldn't he name them here? Also, we know that this is something that John has a penchant for. He likes to refer to himself not with his own name. He refers to himself as the other disciple, or in another, another context, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Also, of all the disciples who travel together, we see Peter and John together quite a bit. James as well, being a brother of John's. But Peter and John traveling together and tailing this, this entourage makes a whole lot of sense. The two titles, the other disciple and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who, again, that title almost everybody says is for sure John. Well, what about this other disciple phrase? Well, it's interesting that both those descriptors come together in John chapter 20 in, in attendance to finding, going to Jesus' tomb. And we see this starting in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. She saw a stone, the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, came to the tomb first. And stopping to look into it, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had come first to the tomb, then entered, and he saw, and he believed. So here we see other disciple and disciple whom Jesus loved, being used interchangeably there in John chapter 20. And then in John chapter 21, we find again the description of this disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's further identified there as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he goes on to say, is the one who is testifying to these things and writing these things down. Okay, so we put all those little things together. What do we have? The person who's writing this gospel is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved is also referred to as the other disciple and accompanying Peter on other occasions. This all makes sense. And as a result, I do agree with the traditional view that what we have here is John, who's gotten access into the high court. He's able to get Peter in by his credentials. Now, this has asked some people to say, well, how is it possible that John had those sorts of credentials? I mean, wasn't he just a fisherman? There have been some amount of discussion that perhaps John actually had come from priestly lineage. And so that's further discussion for another time. But regardless, whoever this unknown disciple is or this other disciple is, that person has sufficient credentials to be allowed entrance. And it's his credentials that are able to get Peter into that courtyard. Now, we don't see anything else about that other disciple after this. So presumably he must go further in. He must go closer to where they're trying Jesus. We're not exactly sure. But for one reason or another, Peter and this other disciple are not present with one another. And Peter finds himself out in this cool night air, warming himself by a charcoal fire. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Peter was there because he was determined to know the end. He wanted to know the telos. He wanted to know the conclusion to this. How were things going to go for Jesus, What were they going to do to him? Remember, as we talked about last time, 
They first came to Annas' dwelling, who was, remember, the high priest who had been deposed by the Roman government. But he still exercised a whole lot of power, as is seen by the fact that his own sons ascend to the high priesthood um, themselves. And right now, at present, Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So, it seems what's going on here is Annas is still exercising a whole lot of power. And to the Jews, perhaps, he was still considered the high priest, even though the Romans had kicked him out of the office. Usually, a high priest served for life. So, it's perhaps that he still has a power that exists here. And so, they take him to Annas first. And it's here that John places Peter's first denial. We're going to see three denials from, G, uh, from Peter. And you're going to see them as acts of cowardice, acts of lying, and we're going to see perjury as well. Peter places himself in the midst of the high priest's servants and guards. He's probably intending to blend in. Think about it. It's a cool night. You're in the middle of his courtyard. He probably wants to be away from everybody, but if he's away from everybody, he might stand out even worse. It might be also kind of chilly, which is the reason why there's a fire going. And so he kind of nestles himself in there instead of standing off by himself where perhaps he would even attract more unwanted attention. We can only, though, guess at what kind of conversation was going on around that campfire. We don't know. The Scriptures don't tell us. But I don't think it's a huge leap to guess that they're probably talking about Jesus. <laughs> There's probably some amount of discussion going on. What happened tonight? I mean, we just saw this cohort of Roman soldiers taking Jesus into, the, uh, into this high priest's um, area. I wonder what's going on with them. Remember, this is that same Jesus who just a week earlier had come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, he was greeted with hosannas and palm branches and all that. And now here he is arrested and with not much ruckus at all. I mean, it seemed like pretty much an easy arrest. I'm sure that the people around the campfire are discussing this amongst one another. Now, it appears that a servant girl who normally worked the gate, perhaps she was the one that John had even talked to and said, hey, let Peter in, begins looking at Peter further. And as she gazes at him, as the light flickers upon his face, she starts to ask questions. Could this be one of Jesus' own disciples? Now, if conversation was about Jesus, I'm sure that Peter and his nervousness was probably showing through. He was probably a bit skittish. This is not normal territory or an area where he was normally allowed access to. Perhaps his body language is even showing some disagreement with comments that are being made there around the fire. We're sure that he's not comfortable. And it's not just because it's a chilly night. He's nervous. He's scared. He's not sure what's going to happen with Jesus. He's uncertain. And out of all of this, a servant girl asks Peter, are you one of his disciples? Now, the four Gospels all record the words differently, which, by the way, has caused many who detract from the Scriptures to be like, oh, look at this. These are inaccuracies. The words are different that are presented here. But I don't think you have much problem seeing that all of these words could have been said at some point in the interchange. I think all, all of the statements that are made regarding him or all the questions that are put forward here are all statements that could have been made as part of the interchange. So, for example, the four that are mentioned here by this girl are, you're not also one of the disciples of this man, are you? This man was also with him. You also were with Jesus the Galilean, with Jesus the Nazarene. These are all just descriptions. And I bet what happened is this. She's pondering in her mind. I think this guy was one of them. 
And then she starts asking, you know, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Galilean. And then finally, then the question comes to Peter, are you not one of his disciples also? The accusation couldn't have come from a more benign source. This is not a man, it's a woman. And it's not a mature woman, it's a girl. And she's not free, she's a slave. Right? This comes from a little servant girl. Can you imagine a more menacing interrogator? If you want to get some information out of somebody, you're going to send in the little slave girl, right? She's going to get you the information. I mean, there's nothing intimidating about this little girl, right? She asks this offhanded question. As a matter of fact, the question that she asks expects a negative reply. It's like saying, you aren't one of his, are you? It's expecting a negative reply from Peter. The question was probably asked hesitantly. It was expecting some sort of negative reply, which I think to Peter suggested a way of escape, one which he took. There were no formal charges, just to make clear here. There had been no formal charges placed against any of the disciples in general, nor was Peter um, trying to be arrested in particular. But Peter decides to cover his identity. He knows that he's in a courtyard filled with enemies of Jesus. And perhaps he's fearful that something might come to him if they realize that he is one of Jesus' followers. Remember also, the people that he's you know, kind of rubbing shoulders with are servants of the high priest. And as you'll see later in the account, perhaps one of them is related to Malchus, who was a servant of the high priest, whom Peter had just pulled out his sword and lopped off his ear. Which, you know, by Jesus' miraculous healing of Malchus, uh, I'm guessing that everybody kind of like, the attention goes off of Peter to this miraculous moment where Jesus heals his ear and there's no charges placed against Peter. But I wonder if Peter's thinking about all of that as he's sitting here in the courtyard. So Peter acts befuddled. By the identification. Who, me? I have no idea what you're even talking about. He craftily evades her questions by shrugging it off as crazy talk, speech of which he doesn't even see a need to answer. But just here, just to be clear, this is just as much a denial. Peter is lying. And it's a form of lying that, sadly, far too often we might find ourselves in and find our children in When we ask them a question like, did you take the cookies? And they say, I don't know. (laughs) They know, right? I mean, it instantly gives them away. They know. But the thing that's so hard about things like, I'm not sure, I don't know who that is, is that it's hard to prove what they know or don't know, right? It pushes it off a level. It's still, though, deceit. Perhaps he justified himself by saying, why incriminate myself with this little servant girl? You know, what would that do? What good could that possibly do? And it might bring me some trouble. Peter gets up and he moves away from the firelight. We're told he walks over to the, to the gate yard area, probably more retreating to the shadows. And the question comes to us, where is bold Peter now? Is this the same guy? This isn't even like years ago. This is this very night he told Jesus. I will not desert you. I'll go to prison and die for you if it takes that. And here's this little servant girl. Are you one of his? Are you, are you, you're not one of his, are you? And, and Peter is denying his friendship with Jesus. This leads, leads to a second denial. Some have, by the way, with the second denial, pointed out differences amongst the people who are referenced in each of the four Gospels as to who's bringing the charge to Peter. And the question is, which one's correct? I mean, is it a man? Is it the same servant girl? Is it another servant girl? Because 
you've got at least three individuals described in the th- in, amongst the four Gospels. There's a man, there's the same servant girl, and another servant girl. So all three of those descriptors are mentioned depending on which of the Gospels you read. Again, this is another of those places where people are like, well, how do you understand that? Which one's right? The Bible is false. You know, you can't make that kind of assumption from this. But again, just think about the realism of the situation. Place yourself there. Here's this little servant girl. She just asked Peter the question. Peter denies it. He walks away. She still thinks that there's something with this guy. Like, he, I'm almost certain that he is one of Jesus' disciples. So what does she probably do? She probably starts with one of her little friends, another servant girl. Hey, what do you think about him, so, yeah, I think, that, I think that he probably is one of them. And all of that probably eventually stirs to at least one guy then standing up and putting the question to Peter again. The point is this. These accounts are not mutually exclusive. All can be true. There's nothing here that says it was a servant girl and it was not a servant girl. That would be a contradiction. We don't have that. A servant girl was making questions. Another servant girl was making questions. And this man then makes a question. All of this hubbub is going on. And the question is put to Peter. You were also one of them. You were with that Jesus of Nazareth. But again, Peter denies it. We, just, we see here the destructive wake of lying. Once begun, it's hard to reverse course, isn't it? Have you found yourself there before? Do we want to admit that we've been there before? Where we've lied, we've been caught in the lie, but to cover the lie, we lie some more. And we lie some more. And the lies just start compounding on one another. You know, at first he's saying things like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're saying. No, no, no. And now here it's like, it's getting more forceful. There's more people that are becoming aware of Peter. And now his denial becomes more clear, more adamant. As a matter of fact, Matthew even says that Peter denied it with an oath on the second time. So he's in some way saying, I swear I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of what he said in the first one. In the second one, he's more saying like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not connected with this Jesus. And he puts himself under oath. Now, this emphatic denial buys Peter a little bit more time. We're told that at least an hour goes by where no one is questioning him further. But his goal of staying close to Jesus while remaining incognito is not working out very well for him. He wants to be there because he wants to see what happens to Jesus, but he doesn't want anyone else to know his connection with Jesus. Can I just stop there for a moment? Spending time with Jesus changes you. Spending time with Jesus changes you. And if you spend time with Him, eventually people around you will mark you as one of His. It won't be long before the world takes notice that you're one of those that went with Him. Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Galilean. An opportunity will then be granted us to bear witness or to punt. First Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Isn't it fascinating that that's Peter writing that? Can I say it again? This is Peter, First Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to give an account to anyone. Little servant girl, another servant girl, a man. Be ready at all times 
with all people to give a defense, to give a reason as to why there is hope within you. This leads to a third denial. Over an hour passes before the third and final denial. Over that hour, Jesus has been under examination by Annas and or Caiaphas by this point with the mockery of a pre-trial. Remember, all this is happening under cloak of darkness. All of it is not in accordance with even Jewish legal proceedings. It's just, the whole thing is just ridiculous. I mean, it's a sham of a trial. It's, it's all filled with all kinds of false witnesses, remember, who can't even get their own stories straight. They keep bringing false witness after false witness, and nobody's even saying the same thing. They can't get two people to agree. Remember, we talked about the irony of the whole situation. Like, why do they even care? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're after something that's injustice in the end anyway. They're trying to accuse a man who's innocent and guiltless. But meanwhile, they're trying to find two false witnesses that can say the same thing that they might put Jesus to death. Remember, this was a, this was a hanging or a crucifixion looking for a reason. Right? They already knew what they wanted to do with Jesus. It wasn't that he had done something wrong and now he has to be punished for it. They wanted to kill him, and now they needed to find something that they could stick to him. And they couldn't find anything. Jesus won't say anything to the false accusations, which even more befuddles those in attendance. Because if you're anything like me, when I hear a false accusation, I'm quick to try to defend myself, right? That's not me. That didn't happen. Like, it's real quick. There's a quick inner lawyer in me. Here's Jesus. He's silent amongst all of this. Eventually, the high priest puts the question directly to him. Are you or are you not the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you the Christ? To which then Jesus does not deny. He says, it is as you have said it is. And you're going to see me after this, coming on the clouds. You're going to see me in glory and sitting in judgment. That's where this thing is all headed. Now it appears over the intervening hour that Peter's mouth couldn't remain quiet, which... I'm not surprised at. Peter is one of those who speaks quickly. I heard one author say, he usually opened his mouth just long enough to insert his other foot into his mouth. Um, Peter says some really great things, but he also says some real boneheaded things, right? He's also the one that gets in trouble all the time for the things that he says. And here he is over this intervening hour, probably still around this whole courtyard area, and suddenly people say, he's a Galilean. There's something about this guy. He's not from these parts. That's what they're saying. Specifically, he's a northerner. <laughs> he's a northerner. Now, I can remember the incessant pokes when I moved from Chicago down to Houston and my accent giving that away all the time. It's around 20 years ago. I was made fun of for calling various forms of carbonated beverages pop um, instead of calling it all Coke, which just still doesn't make quite sense to me, although I have been... You know, I've inculcated our way of saying that it's all Coke, whatever it is. But I was made fun of for that. I can remember people chuckling whenever I said any word with an A in it, because that, for whatever reason, really gave away that Chicago accent or whatever it was. And I learned that the Civil War was still going on because I was called a Yankee everywhere I went. So I, I must have lost, though, at least a little bit of that accent because nobody makes fun of me anymore. Or you're all just too nice to not say that to me anymore. But the point is, they can tell that he's a northerner. He's not from those parts. This guy's a Galilean. And where is Jesus from? Oh yeah, he's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. And so instantly they start putting these things together. Why is this Galilean, who we don't normally see, here with us on this evening? This little servant girl might be onto something. This guy might be one of Jesus' 
followers. Now, according to John, what even adds more fuel to this moment is that one of the bystanders that's there is even a relative of Malchus. And he says, I think I saw you in the garden. You were in the garden, weren't you? Now Peter's, I mean, I'm sure, you know, sweat's coming down his forehead. Oh, no. Like, now somebody's making an identification of me back there in the garden. If they put this together, I'm the guy that drew the sword and chopped off his ear. What might happen to me? By the way, the accusation here in the third time becomes all the more forceful. It's even, it's even attended at the beginning of it by, by truth, or you could also translate it, certainly you are one of his disciples. Yet Peter denies it again. This time he combines his denial with curses and oaths. He gives the most vehement denial by adding it with oaths to God. And there's some amount of debate about this. Curses either on himself or on Jesus. The two words that he uses here, oaths and curses, are interesting because Earlier in Matthew's account, it says that he denied the second time with an oath. And we see that word again in the third time. But then we see this word curses and oaths. The Greek word curse there comes from the uh, base root word that, from which we get anathema. To condemn to hell, to curse, to resign to, you know, to reserve for destruction. Now it's possible that Peter here is saying, if I'm lying, may I go to hell. That might be what he's saying. Or he could be saying, may Jesus go to hell. Either of those things are possible in the context, and we're not sure exactly which one. But either way, the point is this. Peter is further trying to make adamant that he is not one of Jesus' disciples. And he's going to throw them off the case any way he can. Either by calling on a curse on himself, or cursing Jesus. For certainly a follower of Jesus wouldn't curse Jesus. This threefold denial must figure as the low point of Peter's life. But the story doesn't end with a foolish boast. It doesn't end with an act of cowardice. It doesn't end with a group of lies. And it doesn't end with this occasion of perjury where he even swears under oath that he's doing, saying the truth when he's not. Remember, Satan desired to sift Peter as wheat. But Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you. So while Peter denied Jesus... Jesus had not abandoned Peter. Which brings us, point number two, to the sinner's Savior. The sinner's Savior. First of all, consider our rooster's crow and a Savior's look. All his words are still echoing through the courtyard. Can you imagine it? Calling curses on himself or on Jesus. I don't know the man. I have nothing to do with him. Funny, he won't even say Jesus' name. Him, the man. I don't... I don't know who who you're talking about. I have no connection with him. And Luke is the only gospel that tells us this. But we're told that at that moment, immediately, I'll say, a rooster crows. But what Luke tells us is that, and Jesus turns around and looks at him. A rooster crows, Jesus turns, and they lock eyes with one another. Can you imagine? Your, Your words echoing through the courtyard. I don't know the man. May I go to hell? I don't know the man. Then a rooster crows. Jesus turns. And there for that moment, they're looking one another in the eye. 
how is it possible? Was Jesus up in a higher part of this and was able to look through a window and Peter happened to be looking up at the same time? Was it that Jesus was being transported from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house and was somewhere in that interchange? Or after Caiaphas' pre mockery of a pretrial um, coming back to be held before the Sanhedrin. We don't know the exact situation in which they were able to look at one another in the eye, but Luke tells us Jesus turns and their eyes meet. And in that moment, Peter is undone. He remembers what Jesus had just said hours before this. He remembers the foolish boast he had made If everyone denies you, if everyone deserts you, I won't. I'll go to prison. I'll die for you, Jesus. Jesus says, oh, Peter, this very night you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Once again, Jesus' prophetic utterance had come to pass. And the crowing of a rooster is joined with Jesus' searching look. And its impact is to break Peter over his sin. He runs out and weeps bitterly. I love what C.H. Spurgeon says in this text. He says, he feels that the crowing of the rooster makes a fitting connection between that occasion and the occasion of preaching. He goes to say, I may find a fit image of myself in the poor rooster. Mine is a poor crowing As the master's look went with the rooster's crowing, so I trust it will go with my feeble preaching. I cannot melt a hard, rebellious heart, but yet the Lord may use me. And if there come a happy conjunction of my feeble words with my Lord's potent look, then the heart will dissolve in streams of repentance. See how our Lord can do with a look what we cannot do with a sermon, what the most powerful writer can't do with hundreds of pages. And what affliction can't do with its heaviest stroke. The point he's making is this. It's not that the rooster had some effectual purpose in, in Peter's heart. It's that Jesus made use of a simple rooster's call. And one look from Jesus brings conviction to bear upon Peter's heart, breaking it that it ultimately might be healed. This leads to bitter weeping. Peter goes out He falls to the ground. He weeps bitterly. Jesus' look and the remembrance of the words made that very night pierce Peter's soul. Gone was Peter's bravado. Gone was his arrogance and his pride. All self-delusion was removed. Peter had denied his Lord and Master three times while his Lord stood falsely condemned. Peter was the one who stood truly condemned. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Israel, the nation of Israel, is handing him over to Roman authorities to be killed. And here is Peter denying Christ. Just a quick side note. It's a good moment to be reminded that when Peter made that famous confession, remember Jesus asks, what do people say that I am? And all these various answers are given. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, after that, says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, my Father in heaven. He says, You are a rock. He says, And upon this rock I will build my church. Now, sadly, the Roman Catholic Church has taken that to mean that 
actually Peter is the foundation of the church. He's the first pope and all the succession of popes come from Peter and all the rest. That was not Jesus' point. His point was to say, this confession that you have made, Peter, is the rock upon which my church will be built. In other words, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. This is the the truth upon which the church will be built. It ultimately points to Jesus Himself. The foundation of the church ultimately is Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. Everything is built off of Him. The reason I bring this up is to say, Peter's failing here does not mean a failure for the church. The church rests on Jesus Christ alone. Any man is fallible. All of us are subject to sin and wrongdoing. But Jesus is perfect. The God-man is perfect. But before I say anything more about Peter, let's consider ourselves for just a moment. Do you identify with Peter at all in this account? What about with his foolish boasting that preceded all of this? Have you ever been a foolish boaster? Have you ever expressed overconfidence in yourself? I, for one, am really a pro-traditional wedding vow person, personally. I've discussed this with Randy, who has had some occasion to listen to quite a few wedding vows during his videography business. Some personalization that people take uh, is okay, but sometimes the vows that that are desired to be said are really examples akin to Peter's declaration to Jesus. Even if everyone else fails, I will never fail. That kind of idea. For example, for a groom to say to his bride, I'll always love you as Christ loved the church in all circumstances without wavering. Right. You're going to fail that before you walk down off the the podium there that you're standing at. Let's invite the breaking of that vow moments later. I mean, it has all that sentimental ooey-gooey, but it doesn't say anything practically about the reality of who we are, our struggle, and our need for ongoing grace. We have to take care regarding the vows that we make. Forever realize the weakness of our flesh. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Pink said, what is our boasted strength but weakness? And when we're left to ourselves, how our most solemn resolutions melt like snow before the sun. Let me ask you this. Have you ever made promises to God? Oh God, I will never do this ever again. And found yourself break that vow? Who among us is guiltless? Who among us has never boasted in vain things? We're told, beware of a haughty spirit. Pride cometh before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18 Beware also of prayerlessness. Remember, Jesus is pleading with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane before this, saying, stay awake. Stay awake. Trial and temptation is at the door. Be watchful. Be prayerful. It's interesting. We see in Peter a mirror of us. Boastful arrogance. I won't be hurt. Everyone else will. I won't. Prayerlessness. I don't need you at all. Falling. There it is. Arrogance himself. Lack of dependence on the Lord, falling. It's us. It's us. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 You see, the real test of discipleship is not seen in the grand promises that we make in private, but the actions that we take in public. May we make our boasts not in our abilities, but in our ability or in the ability of our Lord and Savior. 
You know, it's one thing to make vows at an altar to marry someone. It's another thing to keep them. And all of us have made vows before the Lord that we have broken. Have you ever denied Christ? Have you ever denied Christ? Certainly we all at one time were dead in our sins. We were living for ourselves, which amounts to denying Christ's lordship, His, His kingship. We lived as if we owned the universe and as if everything should cater to our whims and our desires. But even for those of us who by God's grace have been granted repentance and faith in His Son, even for us who would declare that Jesus is Savior and Lord and King, who have made bold statements of loyalty towards Jesus, have you not found yourself engaged in words and actions that deny His Lordship? Who among us is guiltless? Have you ever been in an environment where in which you were asked about what you believed about Jesus and you sadly punted the opportunity away? You knew you had an opportunity to make a bold claim for Jesus and you said nothing. Ever been there? Have you been presented with moments to stand for what's right and announcing your allegiance to Him and instead were silent or went along with the crowd and doing something that Jesus would not be pleased with? When you're given an opportunity to stand up for God's Word on present controversial social issues, do you find yourself just trying to avoid the conversation or are you speaking up and speaking for truth? When the issue of homosexuality or abortion comes up today, are we found resolutely standing on God's Word? What would our friends declare is our first love? What about our families? What do our families say truly our first love is? What about our co-workers? What about our neighbors? What about our acquaintances? What do our checkbooks say about our loyalty to Christ? Is He Lord of our finances? What do our daytimers say about our first priority? Is Jesus our priority? If we're honest, I'm sure that none of us pass the test of complete and utter loyalty and commitment. And sadly, like Peter, it sometimes is such that the most exhilarating, momentous, spiritual moments in our life are followed by horrible sins. I think because, remember, Peter, he just enjoyed the Last Supper with Jesus. He spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. After all that, in that boastful arrogance, I'll never fall. Everyone else might deserve you. I won't. And here he is. J.C. Ryle said it this way, There's no enormity of sin into which we may not run if we do not watch and pray and if the grace of God does not hold us up. When we read the fall of Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. But there is, lastly, a joyous restoration. What a marked contrast exists between Peter and Jesus. Peter fearfully denies everything in the face of his questioners. Jesus stands quietly denying nothing. Peter fails, but Jesus wins. And because of Jesus' victory, there's still hope for Peter. Remember when Peter had seen Jesus out on the waves, and Peter's quick to say, Jesus, let me come out to you! And Jesus says, come on, Peter! Remember this wonderful moment. He steps out of the boat, and he starts to walk on the waves towards Jesus, and everything's going well until all of a sudden he starts to look at 
the waves and the wind and everything around him. And his eyes come off of Jesus and he starts to sink. And what's so glorious about that moment is that Jesus reaches out his hand and catches Peter. As Peter's faith begins to waver, Jesus reaches out the hand and catches his dear disciple. Oh, it is such a good thing to be in the hands of him whose hand and grip never fails. It's incredible that Jesus, in the midst of his own suffering, is concerned with Peter at the very moment in which all of us, if we were watching this scene, admit it. If you're watching this scene, even on a movie, I, my brother and I are big on this. Whenever you see something embarrassing, it's like the first thing I want to do is like, oh, like you're cringing, right? Like, oh, no, like not this. Feel that. The moment when all of us would cringe, Jesus turns and looks. He looks at Peter. In a moment when everyone might cover their faces, Jesus is looking at Peter. And yes, it is true that sometimes a look from the Lord comes with the idea of judgment and punishment. But it is also the case that the Lord looks to His children out of a yes, a desire to expose their sin, but ultimately to restore them. Because He loves them and He looks to restore them when they sin. You see, even this cold dark night would be followed by a brand new day. The Jesus whom Peter denied is the Savior who for Peter died. Jesus had not only predicted Peter's denial, but also his restoration. He prayed that Peter, having fallen, he says, Satan wants to desire, desires to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you so that after you have fallen, after you've been restored, you might help your brothers. In these words, Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to face a horrible temptation. You're going to fall to it, but you'll be restored. In which case, then you will help others, for they're going to fall too. Jesus then meets Peter's threefold denial with a threefold reinstatement in John 21. We had that read here this morning as well. When he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is John 21. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Wright points out a really interesting small narrative detail that connects this. There's another connection between this reinstatement, if we call it that, of Peter and Peter's denials. In John 21, in verse 9, we're told, that after the disciples are given this great catch of fish, and Peter's like, it's Jesus, it's the Lord. You know, he's like, get on into shore. Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire. And he's cooking fish. Right says this. There's a part of the human brain which seems to be closed off for much of the time, but which can be reached at once through the sense of smell. Charcoal fires have a particular smell to them. I can't particularly describe it, but you'd know it if you smelt it again and you'd remember what you were doing and what you said last time you came upon one. It's fascinating that that smell for Peter, charcoal fire, would have reminded him of his denials. 
sitting in the high priest's courtyard, smelling the charcoal fire as he denied Jesus. When Jesus comes and asks Peter three times, do you love me, buddy? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. It's to that smell. I'm curious. It's like as if Jesus wants to take the memory of Peter's fall and replace it with a whole new memory. He wants to wipe away what used to be a connection of something awful and horrible and He wants to replace it with something wonderful and joyous. You see, the only hope for those who have denied Jesus is this, that Jesus died for deniers. He died for sinners of every sort, of the greatest and grossest sins, of the most scarlet hue. Jesus suffered and died to cleanse the darkest crimson spot. We sing about it this morning. You can't out-sin Jesus' ability to forgive. His forgiveness is able to cleanse us completely. And having been forgiven, Peter would go on now in God's grace to do great things in the name of Jesus for God's glory. Later when persecuted, Peter would say in Acts 4.20, we cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. What a difference. And just as there is hope for Peter, so there's hope for us. Peter didn't earn or deserve forgiveness. And neither can you earn or deserve it. It's sheer grace from beginning to end. And sometimes God's grace is operative in this very thing of allowing us to make the same discovery that Peter came to. That if we do things in our own strength, we will always fail. So we absolutely must be dependent upon the Lord, upon His forgiveness, upon His strength. Will you repent? Will you call out to Him? J.C. Ryle said, No man need despair however far he may have fallen if you will only repent and turn to Christ. The love of Christ toward His people is a deep well which has no bottom. You see, Jesus not only died, but He rose again. And therefore, you can call out to the crucified yet now risen Savior and He will forgive you and He will cleanse you and He'll give you eternal life. I close with the words of C.H. Spurgeon who said this, Look, Savior! Look, sinner! There is life in a look at the crucified One because there is life in a look from the crucified One. May Jesus look and the sinner look. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the marvelous grace and love which You extend to the chief of sinners. Jesus, we thank You that Your grip holds us. For if it was dependent upon our puny strength, there would be no hope for us. Not only would we not come to You in the first place, but we would by no means stay with You. Thank You for Your forgiveness. Thank You for the change that You have wrought in our hearts and continue to do. I pray even here this morning that You would change hearts. If there are some in this place who are lost, who don't know You, that You would grant them eyes to see, a heart to believe. And Lord, for those of us who do know You already, who have been graced in such a way as to be made part of Your family, safeguard us from arrogance and pride. Safeguard us from a lack of watchfulness. Make us prayerful. 
make us dependent. And as we depend upon Your strength, may You do great things for Your glory and kingdom's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.